structures of Western society. But if we are going to break set and blow through the check valve of 2,000 years of Christian brainwashing, we need to pay more attention to guides and talismans developed by ancient pre-Christian religions. For example, this symbol was used by shamans going all the way back to the Aztecs and beyond. It's particularly incredible when you consider how closely it resembles the, the DNA, DNA helix, which provides powerful support for McKenna's theories about tertiary alkaloids like psilocybin, or if you like, magic mushrooms, <laughs> providing the spark that fueled the sudden evolution of human consciousness. Now, your reading assignment for the rest of the semester, which I would highly recommend anyway, is generally considered to be the definitive work on the whole topic of using hallucinogens to reprogram the biocomputer that is Hey, Jeremy, man. Is this the book you've been talking about, bro? What? That book rocks. Dude, that will blow your mind. About my second time through it, I got this idea for a new song, kind of like a journey to the center of your mind type of trip. And I was thinking we could take some quotes from Valerius' translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Here's what I got so far. Like the proverbial frog in the pot, happy to stay put as long as the heat is turned up slowly, Western culture, as in the parable we just saw, has become increasingly steeped in a virtual witch's cauldron of occult thought and practice. What began as an excursion into paganism on the part of a handful of philosophers, artists, educators, and other so-called free thinkers has now become part of the very fabric of Western culture. From sex magic to tattooing, New Age religion to open Satan worship, occult practices that have been progressively eradicated by the advancing influence of the Christian gospel over nearly two millennia are now back 
with a vengeance. And it's here where our story becomes very interesting because as you're about to see, art in general and music most specifically became a primary channel for an occult revival. To understand at least the outline of the big picture here, we're going to begin with a quick history lesson. If you're not interested in these types of more academic pursuits, feel free to skip ahead a few minutes to the end of the primer. The big picture starts several hundred years ago. Beginning roughly in the 15th century, Western civilization began to experience some profound changes brought about by the confluence of a few key cultural trends and events. First, there was the Renaissance, the great age of discovery and exploration. Modern science, which as most objective historians and scientists will attest, was born out of the Christian worldview, began to experience a quantum leap in growth. Discoveries in astronomy, physics, and mathematics in particular, began to hold forth the promise that man could, as Kepler said, think God's thoughts after him and truly begin to plumb the mysteries of creation. Simultaneously, the voyages of the great explorers circumscribed the planet, dramatically expanding man's horizons and opportunities. During this same period, the printing press was invented, and suddenly there was an efficient means by which this new knowledge could be recorded and circulated. The next key movement began in 1517 when a German monk by the name of Martin Luther challenged the institutional church and launched the Reformation. Suddenly, the church, which heretofore had in many ways dominated European life and thought, was now seen as distinctly human, flawed, and as a result, open to being questioned. Increasingly, scientists and philosophers while for the most part still holding to a belief in God, began to pursue knowledge with a diminishing regard for the frame of reference of, first, the church, and then, finally, God and His Word. By the 17th and 18th centuries, these movements culminated in what is commonly termed the Age of Reason and the Enlightenment. While Christian thought continued to exert great influence, particularly in England and America, more and more, the architects of Western culture viewed the God hypothesis as increasingly irrelevant. Human reason was king, and by the middle of the 19th century, most notably with the publication of Darwin's Origin of the Species, the modern era was in full bloom. As Enlightenment principles took hold, however, a number of problems began to emerge. And suddenly, rationalism didn't seem to be the savior so many hoped it would be. First, as the Cartesian foundation for knowledge supplanted the classical Christian formulation, philosophers and scientists began to run up against the limits inherent in independent human thought. Slowly, the great hope of the French encyclopedists and others that man's reason alone could penetrate the mysteries of life began to crumble. By the middle of the 20th century, the twin discoveries of relativity and quantum theory nailed the coffin of classical materialism shut. Another serious setback occurred when the French Revolution, in many instances a well-intentioned experiment in Enlightenment humanism, went horribly awry. 
With the guillotine and the reign of terror, naked human reason was seen to be capable of the worst sort of atrocities. And again, the 20th century, most notably through its various communist revolutions, has only driven this point further into the ground. And finally, as far as this summary is concerned, there was the irrepressibility of the human spirit. Despite materialism's cold insistence that all that existed was matter and its motion, man's innate thirst for meaning, redemption, and transcendence simply refused to go away. And the scriptures tell us why, for he has put eternity in their hearts. This God-shaped vacuum as the famed philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal called it, goes to the very core of man's existence and cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. But, as we've just seen, this Christian solution was no longer acceptable to the supposedly enlightened architects of this modern era. New solutions had to be found as everything from primitive naturalism, radical individualism, intense subjective experience, a classless society, psychoanalysis, and the alchemy of the subconscious mind, and altered states of consciousness, were trotted out by the intelligentsia to fill the vacuum left by their rejection of God. Ironically, by the latter half of the 19th century, the great revolt against the Christian worldview an incremental revolution that was supposedly sparked and sustained by man's bold quest for rational knowledge had become progressively irrational, and everything that has followed in its wake has only served to confirm Chesterton's famous observation. The first effect of not believing in God is to believe in anything. Among the anythings that people began to believe are a number of irrational ideas that are still very much with us today. Belief number one, all religions are equally valid. With the foundations of Christendom being set aside, people ran everywhere in search of answers to the mysteries that science had either refused to acknowledge or failed to penetrate. European colonization in India, China, and Africa in particular sparked a major revival of Eastern and occult religions in the West. Belief number two, a corollary of number one. Primitive cultures, because they are closer to man's natural, uncivilized state, contain truth the Christian West has lost or suppressed. This idea was popularized first by Rousseau and then later by the writers and artists of the Romantic school. The influential German philosopher and key initiator of the God is Dead movement, Friedrich Nietzsche, pushed the envelope even further by calling for a literal reversal of Christian values, substituting instead the will to power and a more primal, what he termed Dionysian approach to everything from philosophy to sexual ethics. And it's also quite significant that Nietzsche and other metaphysicians saw music as a primary carrier of this new ethos. In response to these potent ideas, all manner of occult thought and practice began to spread throughout Europe and eventually America. 
Seances and spiritualist societies became increasingly popular. Foreign service personnel, enamored with the sex cults of Hinduism, wrote tracts introducing these arcane practices to a wider audience looking not only for mystery and meaning, but new ways of gratifying their flesh. Theosophists and the Illuminati spread the gospel of occult enlightenment, making particular inroads in academia and secret societies like the Masons. New drugs were introduced, along with the occult notion that they could be used to spark the fire of psychic enlightenment. In England, Yeats took mescaline and joined the Golden Dawn. Shelley practiced ritual occultism, free love and satanic blasphemy, dying young and leaving behind the troubled founder of modern horror. The Hashish Club in Paris was frequented by Baudelaire, Dumas, Flaubert, Rimbaud, and others. Their school of Romanticism perfected the now common practice of divorcing art from morality, producing art for its own sake, while celebrating Dionysian madness, triggered often by alcohol and drugs, as a key to literal inspiration. Gurus, prophets, ascended masters, shamans, witches, mahatmas, alchemists, and new age messiahs flourished and the river of occult thought became progressively mainstream. And nowhere was this stream more powerful, wider, flowing into more lives than when it coursed through the channel of art and its most potent form, a new style of music that came out of Africa via the Caribbean and the port city of New Orleans. A music whose rhythm patterns serve as conduits for spiritual energies, linking individual human consciousness with the gods. And as we'll see, these spiritual energies help fashion a new world and a new type of worshiper, remade in the image of these gods. Well, having outlined the historical backdrop, let's now connect the dots using a few brief examples that closely follow the pattern we outline in the dramatic piece that opened this section. The story is a broad one, with a million subtexts and minor characters. But we can grasp the essential plot, and I mean that in every sense of the word, by focusing on a few main players and events. We'll begin with the religion and ritual music of what we'll call shamanism, although it has dozens of different names and permutations based upon culture, continent, and ethnicity. As a musical form, it's identified not so much by its primary emphasis on rhythm as by the use of these rhythms, coupled with repetition and the relative simplicity of the music to induce a form of trance state. Shamanistic music, in turn, purposely uses these states of altered consciousness, often enhanced by the use of drugs, to dissolve inhibitions and tap into primal energies, heightened sensuality, boldness, resistance to physical and psychic pain, and contact with spirits are among the intended byproducts of the performance. Well, using our analogy, any number of modern intellectuals became interested in shamanistic cultures, thinking that they perhaps held a key to enlightenment and human evolution. 
Aldous Huxley, for example, the renowned British writer and intellectual, explored mystical experiences far and wide, finally experimenting with psychotropic drugs and advocating their use as a tool of enlightenment. His 1954 work, The Doors of Perception, titled from a line by William Blake's Gnostic treatise, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, became a classic of psychedelic literature. A decade later, the book, as well as Blake's writings, became the inspiration for both the name and the spirit behind one of the most influential bands in rock, The Doors. Let's swim to the moon, uh -huh. let's climb through the tide. Keyboardist Ray Manzarek explained, At the time, we had been ingesting a lot of psychedelic chemicals, so the doors of perception were cleansed in our own minds, and we saw the music as a vehicle to, in a sense, become proselytizers of a new religion, a religion of self, of each man as God. That was the original idea behind the doors. And the form of music played by the doors? Well, you can call it rock and roll, but Morrison and the rest of the band understood its primal source, what it would have been called in another time and in another context. I read a little bit about shamanism, you know, what we see. Uh, with the music and that kind of thing. The shaman, in defining his role in, in society, he's just more interested in um, uh, pursuing his own fantasies. Let's reinvent the gods, all the myths of the ages. Celebrate symbols from deep elder forests. We need great golden copulations. Where did the God of the Bible fit in Morrison's new theology? Petition the Lord with prayer. You cannot petition the Lord with prayer! After deconstructing both Christianity and Western culture, he wonders what should take its place. And what was that new something? Reinvented gods, the ancient ones, the shaman, the wild child, disorder and chaos, a snake who's old and whose skin is cold. Manzarek described the transformation of Morrison, the Lizard King, as these spirit guides came over him in concert. It was a psychological horror, freak show in the sense of the shaman, the sense of possession. Morrison was the shaman who took people on a mystical journey to a darker psychic realm. And guitarist Robbie Krieger added his perspective. We were revivalists, he said, as well as musicians, and wanted our audience to undergo a religious experience. Well, 
millions of fans underwent this religious experience, following the Doors and dozens of other psychedelic bands into the mystical new age envisioned earlier by Huxley. The reason for the Doors, the raison d'etre for the Doors, was making music to plug yourself into the vibrations of the planet, harmonize your inner vibration with the vibration of the audience, the human beings, vibrating in harmony together. It becomes, it's, it, it's like a pagan, it's like some sort of a mystical Christ, the, uh, uh, the release of... Uh, Kundalini, the Kundalini power expanding in your body and curling and coiling upwards. Uh, the Aquarian age in which we'll finally begin to merge all the religions and sciences and arts and whatnot and we'll all realize that we are gods. Jim Morrison was a god to himself. I'm a god unto myself. We are all gods unto ourselves. So to put it outside of yourself is a seeking, uh, is, is, is a false messiah. That's a messianic, that's the, the end of 2,000 years of the culture and the, the religion that we're involved in now. The LSD trip. I salute the God with him. There's a religious pilgrimage. The LSD kick. I salute the goddess within you. It's a religious ecstasy. Following a very similar tack was the grand old man of the psychedelic 60s, Timothy Leary. Psychologist, Harvard professor, and consummate free thinker, Leary coined what may have been the essential mantra of the rock and roll revolution. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. We're turned on, and we're tuned in, and we're very dropped out. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. Turn on. Tune in and drop out. What I'm saying happens to be the oldest method of human wisdom. Look within, find your own divinity, detach yourself from social and material struggle. Turn on, tune in and drop out. In what may be one of the most telling private conversations in modern history, Leary recalled the first time he took psilocybin with Algis Huxley. Huxley's eyes were closed, he said. Suddenly, he clapped his hands. Your role is quite simple, Huxley told Leary. Become a cheerleader for evolution. That's what I did and my grandfather before me. These brain drugs will bring about vast changes in society. We must spread the word. Huxley then continued with a chilling addendum. The obstacle to this evolution, Timothy, is the Bible. Leary, like Huxley, spent his life as a cheerleader for evolution, tearing down the foundations of Christendom and erecting in its place a syncretistic blend of Eastern religion, shamanism, and a do-it-yourself, drug-fueled enlightenment. Our Father, who art in cellular heaven within, hallowed be thy name, from whose loins we have sprung and a primary tool for advancing this new age gospel? You got it, rock and roll. Speaking of the psychedelic bands that dotted the 60s landscape, groups that increasingly embraced his occult views, Leary declared, I rejoice to see our culture being taken over by joyful young messiahs who dispel our fears and charm us back into the pagan dance of harmony. In an essay Leary wrote at the time, he actually spoke of God becoming incarnate in a particular band. 
he or she, he said, has come back as the four-sided Mandela, the Beatles, the means by which to spread the new gospel, music, the sacrament, drugs. And in what became the virtual model for our opening vignette, John Lennon became so enamored with Leary's thought and practice, he used his translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead in the lyrics for the 1966 release, Tomorrow Never Knows. Observing the impact of both this song and, a year later, the groundbreaking Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album, Leary once again extolled the power of music to affect social change by sparking a form of religious awakening. First, Leary said, you started with rock and roll and then you add psychedelic drugs. Millions of kids turned on pharmacologically listening to stoned out electronic music designed specifically for the suggestible psychedelicized nervous system by stoned out long-haired minstrels. This combination of electrical pharmacological expansion is the most powerful brainwashing device our planet has ever known. An instrument for evangelic education. Propaganda that few people over the age of 30 can comprehend. They're laying down a new revelation, the journey to the East. And the East is precisely where the brainwashed multitudes found themselves. The Beatles, the Stones, and the Beach Boys, among many other rock stars, followed the same trajectory described by George Harrison. When I was younger, with the after effects of the LSD that opened something up inside me in 1966, a flood of other thoughts came into my head which led me to the yogis. Having embraced Krishna consciousness, Harrison purposely used his music, as Leary described it, for evangelic education. In a 1982 interview with the ex-Beatle, Vedic scholar Mukanda Goswami observed, I don't think it's possible to calculate just how many people were turned on to Krishna consciousness by your song, My Sweet Lord. And Harrison replied, My idea in My Sweet Lord, because it sounded like a pop song, was to sneak up on them a bit. The point was to have people not offended by Hallelujah. And by the time it gets to Hare Krishna, they're already hooked, and their foot's tapping, and they're already singing along, to lull them into a sense of false security. And, as in our opening piece, multitudes of fans were and are, quote, snuck up on, not just by this song, but through an avalanche of artists and anthems extolling the virtues of everything from reefer to reincarnation, new age spirituality to hardcore Satanism. And while few are led into full-blown devotion, many of the distinctives of occult thought have gained more than a foothold in the thinking of most Westerners. Among them, the denial of either Christ's divinity or his uniqueness the mockery or trivialization of Christian faith and symbols, 
the embrace of pagan practices like ritual cutting, piercing, and tattooing, as well as the use of drugs, trance states, and occult customs and iconography. And perhaps most significantly, the proliferation of the distinctly Eastern and occult notion that God is an impersonal force that lives in everything and everyone so that values and morality are relative to the individual and therefore with no absolute standard of righteousness there can be no ultimate judgment no heaven or hell imagine there's no heaven it's easy if you try John Lennon's most famous song is among the few truly universal and instantly recognizable anthems that rock has produced. John Lennon recorded Imagine on a Thursday. The only song that has been broadcast to most of the world via the United Nations and in perhaps the most surreal performance of all the closing ceremony of the 1996 Summer Olympics. Not only is the song fundamentally communistic, not only does it hold forth the unattainable and ultimately occult notion of a man-made utopia, but by denying the existence of heaven, hell, and finally even God, Lenin and apparently much of the world seeks to deny the one thing that holds tyrants in check and that guarantees individual human freedom and dignity. What Lenin has, quote, imagined would be nothing less than hell on earth. We could spend days examining the vast panorama of occult thought and practice that has been mainstreamed through the contemporary music culture. But let's continue Notes from the Underground by taking just a few snapshots of some of the more crucial collusions between rock and the satanic. We'll see that David Bowie was more right than probably he ever imagined when he stated, Rock has always been the devil's music. I believe that it's dangerous. It could well bring about a very evil feeling in the West, a dark era. I feel that we're only heralding something even darker than ourselves. It's been well said that a person is known by the company he or she keeps. Well, in the world of rock and roll, there's one guy who pops up so often, you'd think he'd invented the backbeat. The Beatles featured him, along with Aldous Huxley and four Hindu masters, on the cover of their Sgt. Pepper's album. The photo montage was made up of what they called people we like and admire and our heroes. 
Their choice was a significant one. Aleister Crowley is generally considered to be the most important and influential occultist of the 20th century. Clever, well-educated, and a prolific writer, Crowley was a walking encyclopedia of occult thought and practice. Dubbed the wickedest man in the world by the British press, Crowley preferred his own pseudonym, the Great Beast 666. In August of 1914, the World Magazine published an account of some of the semi-public ceremonies Crowley held in London. Journalist Harry Kemp attended one such ritual and noted, then came the slow, monotonous chant of the high priest. There is no good, evil is good, all hail, prince of the world, to whom even God himself has given dominion. Kemp continued, sounding for all the world, like he was describing any number of contemporary rock concerts. Men and women danced about, leaping and swaying to the whining of infernal and discordant music. They sang obscene words. Women tore their bodices, some partially disrobed. One fair worshiper, seizing upon the high priest's dagger, wounded herself in the breasts. At this, all seemed to go madder than ever. Such was Crowley's ministry at the age of 39. By the time he died 33 years later, fearful, sobbing, and with the last words, I am perplexed upon his lips, his dark legacy had reached sufficient critical mass to almost single-handedly, in the words of occult writer Robert Anton Wilson, spark a worldwide revival of paganism. Well, in 1918, Crowley uh, took a great magical oath, which was a serious thing for Crowley. And he took an oath that he would surrender all of his magical powers that he had achieved until that date to concentrate his energy single-pointedly on the one task of uh, destroying Christianity and uh, reviving uh, paganism. And I think if you look around the world, it's pretty obvious that Crowley has been uh, a remarkable success. The paganism has made a big comeback in an organized way pagan groups in an unorganized way our whole society has become more pagan. I'll tell you when I was a kid I read Robert Anton Wilson and all this shit, and here we are we're standing here we're talking about this shit, and it's real. If you do these things that you're told by Arthur Crowley if you actually do what they say things happen. Things occur exactly as it's described and we can all do it. <laughs> In 1971, Timothy Leary had an epiphany during a tarot reading that utilized a set of cards designed by Crowley. His revelation? That he was Crowley Reborn and was to complete the work Crowley began, preparing humanity for cosmic consciousness. Leary acknowledged this powerful connection with the great beast in a letter to Wilson, observing that the coincidences, synchronicities between my life and his are embarrassing. From this connection flowed frequent references to Crowley, his philosophy, 
and their common destinies in Leary's writings and speech. Well, I've been an admirer of Aleister Crowley. I think that uh, I'm carrying on much of the work that uh, he started uh, over 100 years ago, and I think the 60s themselves. You know, Crowley said uh, um, he was in favor of, uh, of uh, finding your own self and, and uh, uh, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law under love. It was a very powerful statement. I'm sorry he isn't around now to appreciate the glories that he started. The phrase, do what thou wilt, was taken from the Book of the Law, Crowley's most renowned work, and one whose composition is worth understanding in the context of our study. While visiting Egypt in 1904, Crowley's first wife, Rose, began going into spontaneous trances, muttering things like, they are waiting for you, and he who was waiting was Horus. Intrigued, Crowley and Rose went to visit the Cairo Museum. From a distance, she spied a glass case and exclaimed, There, there he is. Upon inspection, the case did contain an image of Horus painted on a wooden stele. But what particularly stunned Crowley was its exhibit number, 666, his number, the number of the beast. Convinced now that something supernatural was happening, Crowley went back to his hotel and performed a ritual, summoning this higher power. Over three successive days, beginning on April 8th, the book was channeled through Crowley while in a trance. And the content of this revelation? I am the snake that giveth knowledge, the spirit said. To worship me, take wine and strange drugs, whereof I will tell my prophet falling on precisely the wrong side of the Bible's account concerning the fall of man and Satan's role. This snake spirit begins the revelation by telling man that he is a god, that reality is essentially an illusion, sin a myth, and that ethically there's no greater commandment than the law of Philema, Greek for will, as famously stated in the 40th verse of chapter 1. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. We do what we want to do when we want to do Today, that same law has been written, spoken, or sung about by more contemporary artists than even Robert Anton Wilson would have imagined. John Lennon, Jim Morrison, the Black Crows' Chris Robinson, and Marilyn Manson have all trotted it out in one form or another as words to live by. Harry Smith inserted it into the original handbook that came with his renowned anthology of American folk music. It shows up in songs by Mudvayne. David Bowie, The Only Ones, The Electric Hellfire Club, Alphaville, Throbbing Gristle, Numb, Ancient Ceremony, Eddie and the Hot Rods, Death SS, Theater of Tragedy, Cult Disciples, Therion, 
Psychic TV, Celtic Frost, Bruce Dickinson, Moonspell, Graham Bond, Sepultura, Edge of Sanity, The Lords of the New Church, and Marilyn Manson, among others. The band 311 not only uses Crowley's Law as a lyric, the bass player had it tattooed on his leg, as well as Crowley's Tree of Life design on his back. Punk band Unwritten Law had Crowley's Law written on their concert t-shirts. I'm closer to the golden dawn must in Crowley's uniform of imagery. Among rock artists who have studied and embraced aspects of Crowley's magical system, Daryl Hall, Sting, Coyle, and Killing Joke, among many others, could relate at some point in their careers to Bowie's comment. My overriding interest was in Kabbalah and Crowleyism the whole dark and rather fearsome neverworld of the wrong side of the brain. Director Donald Kamel, the man behind the underground film performance, used to enjoy telling friends that, as a child, he would sometimes be bounced on the knee of the wickedest man in the world. Significantly, the film starred the Stones Mick Jagger and Anita Pallenberg herself a devoted occultist, and explored nihilism and insanity through the metaphor of rock and roll. The only performance that makes it, that really makes it, that makes it all the way, is the one that achieved madness, right? Kamel also played the role of Osiris in Lucifer Rising, the film by another Crowley devotee, Kenneth Anger. Anger directed and produced a number of occult films that utilized the talents of rockers Marion Faithful, Mick Jagger, Jimmy Page, and Bobby Beausoleil, another Crowleyite who was later convicted of murder in relation to the Manson cult. And Led Zeppelin's Jimmy Page's fascination with the Great Beast is so notorious, it rates its own link on a website dedicated to Crowleyana. From studying magic as an adolescent, purchasing Crowley's old house, buying an occult bookstore and naming it after a periodical Crowley published, inscribing Do What Thou Wilt onto the runoff vinyl for the first pressing of Led Zeppelin III, even acting out rituals on stage that look an awful lot like those described by the Beast in his, quote, instructions to his magical order. Page meant it when he said, I've employed his system in my own day-to-day -day life. While few artists have shown the same level of dedication to Crowley's life and philosophy as Page, or the members of Coil, or any number of satanic metal bands, there's one sense in which Crowley's legacy has become central to the spirit of most of rock and roll. We'll discuss this in more detail in part eight of this series, but for now, understand that his primary message was simply, find your true will and then do it. Thou hast no right but to do thy will. Do that 
father shall say nay. Every man and every woman is a star. Which, when you boil it down, really means there is no God but man. This is not to say literally that there's no God. Satan knows there is, as do all men, if but just deep in their hearts. The crux of Crowley's demonic creed was just that each individual has no higher authority than their own will, that we are free to live life as we please. And this was the lie that the serpent hissed in the garden, and the deception that has become the siren chorus that floats through the world of popular music. Another way to dust for Satan's fingerprints is to examine the signs and symbols that are used within the culture of rock and roll. Even as words have etymological roots, so do symbols and gestures. And we can learn a lot about a movement or a culture by tracing where those roots lead to. For example, Hitler's National Socialist Party, the Nazis, used as its primary icon the Twisted Cross or swastika. Well, it's no accident that this same symbol had been embraced as a powerful talisman during the occult revivals that immediately preceded the Third Reich. Madame Blavatsky's Theosophical Society, for example, used the swastika in their official seal. Significant? Well, understand that Theosophy's influence was considerable among Western intellectuals and counterculturalists, particularly in Germany. Among their many teachings was a Gnostic theory of racial superiority and purity as a key to the evolution of a superhuman race. There's little doubt that Hitler's racial theories and the icons he used to represent them were taken from the occult world of Blavatsky and others. In short, one can understand the fruit by looking at the root. Well, Rock and roll is awash in any number of signs and symbols that have their roots in either the occult world or in the Bible's symbolic representations of evil. The pentagram, or pentacle, for example, has a long history in the occult world, as well as in the culture of rock and roll. Ditto the Il Cernudo, or horned hand, a symbol used in occult circles to represent the horned god Satan. Contextually, it can be used in a benign way, save, for example, to represent the Texas Longhorns. But in the dark, rebellious, and carnal world of rock, there's little doubt as to its ultimate significance, whether people are aware of it or not. Then there's the infamous goat head, Judas goat, or Baphomet, a symbol whose only context is within the so-called left-hand path. Voodoo, Satanism, the Golden Dawn, the doodlings of self-confessed satanic serial killer Richard Ramirez, and more than a few rock bands. Kiss that goat! 
Occult fortune-telling devices like tarot cards and Ouija boards are also not uncommon, with at least two bands claiming to have used the Ouija to divine their names. David Bowie consulted both it and a crystal ball in developing the character of Ziggy Stardust, the androgynous messiah who scrambled so many people's definitions of truth, authenticity, and sexuality in the 1970s. Then there are the various distortions of the Christian cross, among them the Southern Cross or Upside Down Cross, and the Satanic Cross, which was used as the group symbol for Blue Oyster Cult. Even as the occult world loves to mock the cross and everything holy in the Bible, it's also quick to embrace the scripture's images of evil. Most notable, perhaps, is the dreaded Mark of the Beast, or 666, the consummate number of man in his rebellion against God. The number has become so closely associated with contemporary music culture that rock journalists frequently use it as shorthand to represent the industry's obvious commitment to rebellion, sex, chaos, and, well, evil. In the same way, every demon in the Bible, every alternative name for Satan, and many of the evil people found in either the scriptures or in the Judeo-Christian tradition make an appearance in one form or another. For example, when Sarah McLaughlin went looking for a name for the popular tour that showcased female performers, she settled on Lilith Fair. And who was Lilith? Well, the mythological first wife of Adam, who was thrown out of the garden for her unwillingness to submit to either God or her husband. She was Adam's first wife before Eve and wanted to be treated equally, yet he refused her that. And so she took off said, fine, I don't need this. She's such a strong and wonderful feminist figure, yet we've never been taught that. So I feel really proud to put her back on her rightful goddess position. The Lilith Fair was far more subversive and uh, satanic than anything that I could have done because uh, here you have people playing this very uh, innocuous folk music that's uh, providing America with a lot of very dangerous ideas about women's sexuality. Manson nailed it. Lilith may look cute and have a sweet voice, but her rebellion against God's authority begins and ends in hell. To excuse all this as meaningless metaphor or Halloweenish, just kidding hijinks, is refusing to see the forest for all of the trees. We could spend hours documenting other examples of this sign language, but let's finish with one that is particularly interesting because it's more subtle, operating on a more subliminal level. If one were to survey the pantheon of world religions and attempt to identify the, quote, deities that best personify salvation through chaos, death, and madness, two at the top of the list would be the Prince of Darkness, under one of his many names, and the Hindu goddess Kali. Interestingly, they share many things in common, but one of the more curious as regards our analysis is the whole tongue thing. 
Kali is normally depicted, along with a necklace of human skulls, with her tongue sticking out. And anecdotal information provided by people who have consorted with the devil in some form or fashion paints a very similar picture. Keeping in mind the bigger picture we've just looked at, ask yourself, could there be any spiritual application here to the world of rock and roll? The Stones freely acknowledge that their famous logo was based in part on Kali. The goddess Kali, and goddess Kali has this disembodied tongue that sticks out. And protruding tongues are second only to the extended middle finger as the universal symbol of rock and roll rebellion. Shrug it off if you can, but God isn't laughing. You sons of the sorceress, whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression? offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree. Let your collection of idols deliver you, but the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Of course, we're not suggesting that every time a tongue is stuck out, it represents this level of demonic rebellion, any more than this hand gesture always represents Satan. But clearly, in certain contexts, it can have a deeper, darker, and more spiritual significance. And given the rock and roll industry's occult foundations and its blind embrace of chaos and rebellion, one would have to be either incredibly naive are willfully blind not to admit that something very strange is going on here. Like it or not, where buzzards flock, there's dead meat. And you can be sure that where the icons, signs, and symbols of evil gather, that real evil is not too far away. young people who are uh, discovering that psychedelic plants and vegetables can be used for trance experiences. It's called acid house music. The, uh, the, the basic uh, strategy here is uh, you set up a hypnotic trance experience, uh, either LSD and uh, XTC, and you just kind of dance for four hours. And then there are certain words, mantras that come in and out. It's amazing how another generation intuitively, thinkingly develop the group shamanic uh, experience and uh, uh, it's, it's becoming very, very popular in Europe and this country. Nowhere is the occult world more powerfully realized in contemporary music than in the confluence of DJs, hypnotic rhythms, strobing lights, covert all-night parties, drug usage, and new age ideologies that define much of the rave subculture. I mean, the hippies talked about it for ages. Dawning of the age of Aquarius. It's here. It's coming. It's here. Now, it's here. 
you know, listen and be reborn. What began as an underground phenomenon, often relegated to exotic locales in India and the Mediterranean, has become mainstream, with events drawing thousands of people in cities around the world. But as we've seen throughout this series, there's a lot more going on than just music and people having a good time. Both the musicians and the audience understand that there's a profound spiritual vibe going on as well. You should let go of all your inhibitions and dance your socks off. Um, because that letting go process will open you up. You can't bottle the feeling of just total euphoria. Like when a DJ just brings you like to this level where you're just like totally out of your head. Your consciousness is expanded because of this supernatural thing that happened to you. As close as you can get to God, this is the closest I've ever felt to being with God. Rave music and techno music and the new dance music is the flowering of new, new spirituality. This new spirituality is in fact quite old. The cultivation of altered states of consciousness through a variety of techniques and substances that have been used shamanistically for thousands of years. Let's go back to you know, indigenous cultures, to the ancient civilizations, you know, shamanistically. You know, it was part of the ritual you would take, you know, there were certain drugs that would open up certain levels of consciousness. So when you surrendered yourself into the dance, into the ritual, into the collective organism, you have this, you're opening yourself up. It's just, it's just, it's a key. On his website, Decker is very specific about the means by which his band will help his audience open up. Medicine Drum are modern shamans, he says, the techno-pagans of electronica. They take the listener on an incredible journey into psychedelic trance. And Decker has loads of company. There are hundreds of bands and DJs who view their music in precisely the same way, as a form of techno-paganism, a gateway into trance and the spiritual world. Goa Gill, perhaps the most revered of the techno-tribal DJs, cut to the bottom line when he declared, music has gone through a complete cycle. It started in ancient times with tribal drumming, and now it's come back to tribal trance techno. I'm basically just using this whole party situation as a medium to do magic, to remake the tribal pagan ritual for the 21st century. It's an initiation. Quite often, these shamanistic experiences are intensified with the use of drugs, expanded now through modern pharmacology to include new and powerful psychotropics, including LSD, E or ecstasy, G, and special K. When you drop this chemical bomb into your neurosystem, you are cutting up all your previous inherited perceptions of what we call reality. Everyone suddenly has shamanic experience for a couple of dollars. And then there's the use of light and sound to manipulate. Most DJs would say accentuate everything from metabolic rates to brainwave activity and states of consciousness. Whether we're talking about in training or photic and auditory driving, 
The terminology may be more sophisticated, but make no mistake about it, these alterations are based, often consciously, on occultic, shamanistic formulas. Indigenous rituals performed by shaman in the Peruvian Amazon and stuff, they would beat a drum at a certain number of wave cycles per second. In modern club culture and in seeing modern club events and modern rave events and things like that, you're seeing people in training in the same brain state. You've got strobes, you have lighting that everyone's taking in, you have big time photic driving, and the music is auditory driving. That's why people get so excited at the rock concert and tear up the seat. It's because their metabolism is being governed by the bass and the rhythm and the light. And that's what it's all about. It has reduced down in the West for the first time to a ritual which admits to and utilizes the most arcane and ancient methods for achievement of altered states and a celebration of that contact with others. But what is this otherness that ravers often come in contact with? Into what are they being reborn? Reborn. Before we answer that, allow me to again say that we're not questioning people's conscious intent or their sincerity. I know that many ravers don't use drugs and an even greater number really enjoy and are even comforted by the often sincere sense of community that a rave can produce. And compared to the brain deadness of a hardcore mosh pit, a rave can seem even sublime. But sincerity and new age goosebumps are not the ultimate arbiters of truth. As always, we need to look at both the methodologies and the fruit through the lens of scripture. And in that context, what we find once again departs from the true faith and gives clear heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Not only do we find drug abuse, including the not infrequent overdose, not only do we encounter sexual immorality, sometimes reaching levels that rival the orgies of the ancient cult of Dionysus. But preeminently, whenever spirituality becomes open and ritualized, it invariably clothes itself in the garb of pagan and Eastern religions. You've seen him a million times, the dancing deity in the ring of fire, the image of the Hindu god Shiva. In searching for my personal connection to best explain these roots of trans dancing from ancient India, I felt I needed to go deeper than books. I felt the need to invoke Shiva. So last night, as I prepared to go to a party at the Dimension 7 warehouse in San Francisco, I considered my intention for the evening. I wanted to become a sacred temple dancer. I knew I was on target when I arrived and immediately was greeted by a large bronze statue of Shiva dominating the altar in front of the DJ. Shiva had indeed been invoked. The magic had been spun and the time had come for me to experience my devotional dance. The techno beat morphed in my head, the mesmerizing drone of devotional songs being repeated over and over again. Ecstatically allowing the trance to overtake me, I felt my body gyrate in unfamiliar ways that seemed as old as Shiva himself. I was able to leave my body and observe myself in this new, old incarnation. The trance dance spiraled me into the deep meanings of these movements. 
So this must have been the justification for the nights of wild sex I've read about in those Hindu temples. It is obvious to me that they were also in the trance, induced by the rhythmic music of their own blissful states. I wondered what local concoctions the devotees imbibed. After all, Shiva is the god of sex and drugs and rock and roll. Within the warm, protective womb of Western, specifically Christian culture, these heartfelt observations may read like nothing more than a recipe for personal enlightenment. But both the Bible and the cultures that live within the full force of these demonic doctrines declare otherwise. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Bands like KISS and Megadeth may try to trivialize charges of occult influence through ridicule. Megadeth fans, are you ready to sell your soul to the devil? But when axes aren't being ground, even rock apologists will acknowledge this dark side, as in this cover story by the British rock magazine Mojo, how rock and roll really did dance with the devil. The 1960s witnessed an occult revival the likes of which hadn't been seen in the West since the fin du siècle days of Madame Blavatsky's Theosophical Society and Aleister Crowley's Golden Dawn. For some artists and individuals in and around the rock music industry, this dance with the devil is both literal and intentional. And we feel that a cleansing of the idiot ideology of the pallid, incompetent Christ is uh, in order. And so uh, this is something that the Church of Satan is conducting on many different avenues. We're doing this through the use of uh, uh, what we have called aesthetic terrorism. Uh, this involves the creative use of art, uh, music, writing, uh, effectively what we call propaganda, the dissemination of information to influence uh, what we call irony. Am I the son of the Waymore? Am I the chosen one? The bay of Messiah on earth. It's a sin. I do like it. To create the most evilest music and to gain entrance into the seven gates of hell. Do you believe in demonic possession? Of course. Are you possessed? Of course. Well, there's a, a clear, at least I assume there's a clear satanic influence in your work. Is that real or is that a sort of tongue-in-cheek humor that you have? No, know? that's as real as it gets. Um, but your art certainly, it seems to express the stereotype of Satanism. Uh, yeah, but I use that specifically to bash the church. <laughs> Why? Because that's really what Satanism is to me. It's anti-Christianity. Both the Bible and human experience make it clear that the vast majority of people who live under the power of sin and Satan are unaware of it, at least consciously. Salvation then is described as a process whereby God gives people grace so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. 
The scriptures also address how these same senses can be progressively seduced until people can't tell, spiritually speaking, up from down, their right hand from their left, as they walk as the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind having their understanding darkened. The eventual result, individuals and, if left unchecked, eventually a culture in which this darkness reigns, where evil becomes good and good evil, and where finally even the occult and Satan himself become acceptable, even cool. Father Lucifer, you never look so sane. You always did prefer the drizzle to the rain. Tell me that you're still in love with that milkmaid. How the Lizzie's, how's your Jesus Christ been hanging? Sounding for all the world like Crowley and LaVey, Tori Amos told Spin Magazine about her love for Lucifer, a Latin name for Satan. I wanted to marry Lucifer. Lucifer was the brother holding the space for mankind to act out their fears and hidden secrets, things they won't acknowledge. That's what the shadow is, and once you don't deny your shadow anymore, then it's not a perversion of that energy source. I don't consider Lucifer an evil force. We can all tap into that free-running current of distorted energy. She went on to talk about him on a more personal note. I feel such a sadness from him, she said. I cry and feel his presence with his music. I feel like he comes and sits on my piano. Yet this is a pretty serious being. I'm a little squirt when you think what a very serious force this is. Avant-garde artist Diamanda Gallus has admitted to tapping into this same energy. Before performances, I used to say prayers to the devil. It was like making a connection to some source of power so that I could do what was not socially accepted. It was like, you know me, you understand me. I can speak for this reality. You can help me do this. Among her many blasphemous recordings, writings, and performances is her interpretation of Baudelaire's The Litanies of Satan, which includes the final prayer in French, To thee, O Satan, glory be and praise. Grant that my soul one day beneath the tree of knowledge may rest near thee. It should come as no surprise that she has described her performances as being like a ripping of the flesh, like a bloodletting. A kind of voodoo possession, asked the interviewer. Exactly, Gallus replied. A Ugandan who saw my performance said that what I did reminded him of a voodoo ritual which is practiced in Uganda. That if I were performing there, I would be worshipped as a high fetish priestess. Well, Gallus and Amos have loads of company when it comes to artists who get off on this fetishistic voodoo sympathy for the devil vibe they view as the true heart and soul of the music. Robert Palmer glowingly described it as the central rock and roll paradigm, a kind of voodoo rooted in a vigorous tradition 
of celebrating nature and spirit that's far removed from the sober values of Western culture. David Byrne lovingly helped produce a television special about it, calling voodoo-related sound a big part of where our popular music comes from. Rock and roll comes from those traditions, and I believe that the power and influence it has had has come because it carries a small part of that energy with it. And this same voodoo vibe was more than just a lyrical device for Jimi Hendrix. A percussionist from West Africa who often played with the guitar god observed that many of the signature rhythms Jimmy played on guitar were very often the same rhythms that his father played in voodoo ceremonies. And while for many all this may sound cool, dark and mysterious, in the end it will be seen for what it is, a snare of the devil, where people ultimately become captive to his will. Now one of the biggest things about him was he believed that he was possessed by some spirit, and I got to believe it myself, and that's what we had to deal with all the time. And he was very humble about discussing it with people because he didn't want people to feel like he was being uh, pretentious and so on, but he really believed it, and he was wrestling with it constantly. Yeah, he used to always talk about some devil or something was in him, you know, and he didn't have any control over it. He didn't know what made him act the way he acted and what made him say the things he said and and songs and different things like that just come out of him, you know, and, and uh, he'd say, I don't know what come over me, you know, I really can't understand it. And, you know, he used to just grab his hair or something or pull his hand or stand in the mirror or cry or something. Oh, Lord, it was so sad when he would cry. It, I mean, it seems like to me he was so tormented and just torn apart and like he really was obsessed, you know, with something really evil. And finally, this embrace of the occult has led to a curious phenomenon described in the Bible. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Where people in their fallenness move beyond rejecting light and loving darkness and come to the place where they are fascinated with and even love death and hell itself. For example, besides riding the serpent and mainstreaming the venom of the do-what-thou-wilt worldview, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Eric Burden has also come face to face with the spiritual entities that slither beneath the surface. His entree to this occult world, like so many other rockers, was through the doorway of pharmakia, the sorcery that is psychotropic drugs. In his autobiography, he described an LSD trip he took with Andy Summers, guitarist for the police. As he stared at a Hindu mural created by Summers, focusing on the figure of Kali, the goddess of death and destruction, he fell into a deep coma. Then I came face to face with Kali, Burden remembered. I was covered in a void. Darkness, darkness. Ah, so you need answers, said Kali. If you want information, you have to make me a gift. 
You've taken my sight, Burden responded. What more do you want? She laughed a wicked, cruel laugh in the darkness. How much are you willing to give? My life, I said. My life was sucked out of me. I was gonzo, melted to the floor, dead. Compare this with the testimony of a student at Columbia University after she took part in an occult ritual led by Dr. Michael Harner, an anthropologist and practicing shaman. I went down a couple of levels and then went even further to some area that was very gray and slimy and foggy. And I walked through that for a while and found another opening and went down even further. It was someplace I'd never been before. And it was kind of like a cave. And there were some beings in there, but I couldn't quite make out what they were. And I was just kind of sitting there with them. And all of a sudden, they came at me with knives and tore me apart into all these pieces and tore my flesh off. And I was startled, but it didn't hurt. And finally, there's the testimony of rock and roll's most focused, committed, and articulate neo-pagan, Genesis Peoridge. In the occult magazine Gnosis, he enthusiastically described a life-changing experience he underwent in Nepal when he became the first Westerner to be invited into a particular shrine to the Hindu god Shiva. Then this priest anointed me with this tilak, Peoridge remembered, and I got this really fast freeze frame of the shrine animal intestines, and mummified human heads, and incredibly powerful, very dark-edged materials, pools of blood. And it was really dark, and he started chanting. As soon as he started chanting, it was like Terence McKenna described DMT. I just went, woo, instantly into this completely altered vortex, shooting into this deeper and deeper blackness floating in liquid blackness, the ultimate blackness, black beyond black. And then I became really aware that somewhere within this ultimate black were these two shiny, slightly pointed, almost insectoid eyes. Shiva watched. After years of studying the occult traditions of Crowley and Austin Osmond Spare, of ingesting powerful psychotropics and practicing sex magic, ritual cutting, tattooing and piercing, cross-dressing, filing his teeth, presenting occultic and obscene performance art, playing the techno-shaman, putting the satanic Anakian calls to music and relentlessly blaspheming God, Peoridge was finally ready to come face to face with the spirit behind it all. And he consciously did what so many others do unconsciously. He embraced the darkness. Looking again at John's Gospel, and this is the condemnation, that the light, Jesus, has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And let me say something here in closing. Don't write off Peoridge, or any of the other people we've just looked at, as some nutcase from whose life you can't draw any personal inferences. All he's done is go for the gusto, taking the essence, the ideas that gave rise to our modern rock and roll world, and then just chase them to their logical limits. To put it another way, he's splashing about in the deep end of the pool of do-what-thou-wilt rebellion, while most moderns just dangle in their feet or wait about in the shallow end. 
But whether you dive in or just dip, you still belong to the same club. And one day, unless you repent, give up your membership, you'll find your eternal destiny in the same place of which Eric Burden, our Columbia University student, and Genesis Peorage caught but a glimpse. What is the alternative to death being torn apart by demons and infinite blackness? Well, eternal life, infinite love, and the perfect light of a God whose holiness burns as a consuming fire, who dwells in a light so immeasurably bright as to be unapproachable by man in his fallenness, but who has reached down from the cross to purify man and prepare him for a new heaven, a new earth, and a holy city where there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. And as a living testimony of God's light and grace, among his servants are those who once proudly bore the marks of the beast. I was really angry, and I hated everyone and everything, and I basically wanted to murder the world. I wanted everybody to just die. I wanted everybody to suffer like I was suffering. And I wanted the power to make them suffer. This will give you an idea of how where I was coming from. I still am fighting a constant battle between what is good and what is evil in me. Evil is winning to my extreme joy, but the good is not easily defeated. But I know in my heart that evil will prevail in the end. Blessed be the darkness is what I said at the time. Today I formally and finally renounce all good and pledge my allegiance to evil. Long live the dark ones. Praise be to all evil. Satanism, according to Anton LaVey, and, to, and according to Satan, in all truth, is meism. It has nothing to do with worshiping anybody else. That's the definition of Satanism in the truth. The funny thing about it was, is I didn't know I was a puppet. I thought I was the puppet master. I mean, the hat was wearing me. The costume I thought I was wearing was wearing me. To seek your own will is to seek the will outside of God. God is life. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Your way is, is, is dead way. I mean, it's, it's suicide is literally what it is. It might not matter to you now. It might not matter, you, matter to you to the day you breathe your last breath, but it will matter. You will regret it. You will be sorry. And I hope it's on this side of the grave because if it's on the other side, you're gonna be sorry forever. A lot of you have heard this song, I'm sure, but it's true. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, but now I see. 